This is Learn From Others, where we interview a cross-section of successful individuals so you can learn from their experiences, achievements, and even their mistakes. We ask four questions that will educate and inspire. Greg Stanley will be your guide as we join our guests on a journey from adolescent daydreaming to success in today's world. Join us on this adventure as we learn from others together. Welcome to Learn From Others, where we help others succeed by sharing success. I'm very excited to introduce our special guest, Larry Shashansky. Larry, how are you doing today? Good, Greg. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Well, before we find out what you're actually doing today, if you would, could you please tell me what did you want to be when you grew up? So when I was about eight, nine, or 10 years old, I had this idea that I wanted to help the world. Um, I'd listen to newscasts that my father would listen to on the nightly news, and I heard all this horrible stuff that was going on, and I thought that um, if people would listen to me that I could solve the world's problems. Now, that was pretty naive for sure, and I I didn't have what it took to uh, make much of a difference in the world, that's for sure. But as I entered middle school and into high school, I had a number of uh, English teachers who were really inspirational for me, and they encouraged me to write. So I started to write, and back then it was mostly love poems and short stories about, um, you know, the things that adolescents go through. They weren't any good at all. Uh, But once I graduated high school, I went into college, and I pursued writing there. And I wrote a number of things, and some were good. Some were actually pretty good. Most of them were just slock. They weren't really good at all. But I I didn't understand that what you needed to do was write and write and write and write and write and write and write. Uh, In addition to that, I got involved with a lot of alcohol and a lot of drugs, and Mm. I flunked out of college. And at that point, it was the late 60s, early 70s, and they had the draft lottery in the United States. And Greg, it's the only thing I've won in my life was the draft lottery. Are you kidding? Wow, that's crazy. (laughs) Yeah, it was pretty nuts, I got to tell you. So I ended up going into the service. And for about three years, three or four years, and when I got out, I went back to school with a renewed sense of uh, purpose because I had thought that the reason I'd gone into the service was because I had messed up. I had flunked out of school, and they had school deferments back then, so I was determined not to ever be in that position again. So I went back to school. I'm driving to school one day, and I'm thinking in my head, this is where this eight or nine, ten-year-old idea of helping the world comes out, this is idea, the spark hit me that I wanted to do some volunteer work. And as I'm driving to class, this uh, advertisement on the uh, asking for volunteers for rape crisis center came on the radio. So I called them the next day. I did an eight week training with them. And I absolutely fell in love with therapy and clinical work and helping people at that level. Plus, I did a lot of presentations in the community, at schools, and in businesses around rape awareness. So that when I graduated undergraduate school at Old Dominion University in Norfolk, Virginia, I went to graduate school. I got a master's degree in clinical social work. I moved up north and did a uh, uh, got a few jobs up in this area and met the woman that I eventually married. And we've been married for about 36 years. I've got an older son who's 39. I've got a middle son who is 33, and I've got a daughter who's 31. Wow. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. Um, So I settled down pretty well, actually. And uh, the dream or this idea of me being a writer never left me. Uh, And this idea of wanting to help people never left me. So I continue to do 
psychotherapy in for-profit and non-profit hospitals and organizations and uh, emergency rooms and for the courts and just anywhere that I thought I could be helpful. But at the same time, I set up a writing room where we raised our family and it's my own private room. And I got to tell you, I wrote hundreds, if not thousands of pages of I wrote haikus and I wrote poems and I wrote short stories. I even wrote a novella once. I had writing coaches. I went to um, conferences both in the United States and out of the United States because I still had this idea that I wanted to be a writer. So I pursued and pursued. But over 35, over what, 30 some odd years, I never got a single thing published, nothing Mm. at all. But I continued to do my therapy. I actually um, went into private practice for instead of having daycare for our um, our three children, I stayed at home during the day with my kids. My wife was a music teacher, and when she'd come home in the afternoon, I would go in to do the office at night. So the flexible schedule really worked well for me. So what happened is about, let me back up for one second. I carried a virus with me, hepatitis C, for 40 years. Oh, and wow. without me really knowing it, it made me very draggy, made me tired. I wasn't clear thinking. I'd often have to take a nap, and I really didn't know what was going on until I was diagnosed. Three years ago, after having been in two trials, two treatment trials, which almost killed me, like with Robivarin and Interferon, for example, which are really brutal treatments for this, it makes you really super depressed and and fatigued, and it was hard for me to do my work. But I came out of those okay, and three years ago, I was in a clinical trial and in two weeks, the virus was gone. Absolutely, it was like a miracle. I got to tell you, for the first time in my life, I actually was introduced to myself for the first time. That's how I felt. I was clear thinking. I had energy. I didn't have to take naps anymore. And that's when I started to write this book on relationships. And I got some people around me to help me. And it got published two years later. And before we go a little deeper into your book, why don't you kind of? I know you mentioned what you wanted to be when you grew up, and let's. Let's, you talked to it a little bit. Let's talk about the role you have as a psychotherapist. How long have you been doing that role? I've been doing that for about 40 years. The interesting thing about this desire to be a writer, that once I started to write this book and actually publish it, I realized I didn't want to be a writer at all. Mm. That was so that was kind of um, an idea, an idealistic kind of picture that I had in my head and as I wrote this book and got it out and done more speaking engagements, I've realized that that spark I had at an eight, nine, or 10-year-old kid is exactly what I want to do. So my purpose became clear, and that's what I do. And I just I, I do clinical social work now. I have a private practice, but I also do talks around. I do a lot of that. So most of our audience are students. Could you go into a little bit exactly what you do, how you do it, what your day in the week of, you know, how your work week goes? You know, I don't know that they're all as familiar with how it works in an everyday practice type of an environment. So I got out of graduate school and I started to working for agencies for about 10 years. I worked for a residential agency for adolescents. I started the family therapy component there. And I also, for a year or two, ran, I directed the adolescent unit as well. Then I worked for a private hospital. Then I worked for some family service organizations. I worked for, I directed outpatient services for a mental health center. I worked in emergency capacities and in hospitals. 
I went into people's homes and did evaluations. And I think those first 10 years, kind of doing the work I needed to do. And by the way, I wasn't making a lot of money. I can remember my first job, <laughs> I made $18,500 a year. Wow. <laughs> yeah, wow. it was pretty amazing. But the experience I gained, and I think that was the issue for me, was absolutely immense. Absolutely immense. So once I started having children, uh, like I said, I opened my own private practice. And now with my kids older and um, most of my friends are retired or semi-retired, I work full time. The nice part about the clinical work for me, well, let me back up a second. The, the, the first 10 years formed me as a therapist. It, it gave me a wide berth of experience with what uh, some people call walking well to, to chronic patients in hospital settings and large state hospitals and everywhere in between. And it was, I just absolutely loved it. And I kept growing and growing and growing as a clinician until I was ready to be at a stage where I could start my own private practice. The nice part about private practice for me is the flexibility and time. Although it's a lot of work, it's a lot of effort, and I still stay well connected to colleagues for, you know, occasional supervision that I need or just to run by a case here and there. But I basically go in the office. Uh, I do hour by hour. I see about 30 clients a week, which is really nice for me. And the rest of the time, I do speaking engagements and podcasts and radio programs like we're doing today. So now when a client comes into your office, is it family-oriented? Is it uh, any type of relationship? How, does, how, how do you define that? Or is it all over the spectrum? It's all, for me, it's all over the spectrum. I'm what they call a generalist. I specialize in family and mostly marital and premarital counseling. That's mostly what I do. That's most of the people that I see during the week. And I absolutely love it. That's how I got the idea for the book. And just seeing so many uh, couples and being married for 35 years. Um, so it works that somebody comes in and sees me. I don't have a specific theory that I work off of, although the my idea about relationships is very theory-oriented. Um, I Usually there's a social work addict that you always go – you always start where the client is, and that's what I do. So sometimes I can be very confrontational. Sometimes I'm more laid back. Sometimes I don't talk a lot. Sometimes I talk a lot. Sometimes I'm strategic. Sometimes I use what they call CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy. Sometimes I use family systems. I'm pretty eclectic, and the my my that comes from me getting a feel of what somebody needs versus me imposing on them what I think they should have. That's really cool. And I like how you mentioned that 10 years of foundational groundwork you had for your career really helped you out now. I mean, because uh, you're so well-rounded. I can't, I can't express enough. And I'm thinking that it's just not psychotherapy. I'm thinking just about any career. You, re you really want, not that you need to, but you really want to get into the, I guess the old cliche is trenches, just to get the experience. And just the more experience you get, the more mature you become in whatever you're doing in my field, the more mature of a clinician. And I'm still growing. I got to tell you, I still, I still, you know, look back at my day and look at some of the sessions that I had and how they went and what I could have done better and what I could have done differently and those kinds of things. So I'm constantly, constantly moving forward. That's great. Great way to look at it. As a reminder, you can check out all previous episodes at learnfromothers.org. And if you're an educator or a student, 
you can search for podcasts by career cluster. So we learned what you wanted to be when you grew up, which was to help people and what you do today, which is helping people. Right. So looking back on all of it, what would you do differently? So what would I do differently? I would divide that into two categories for me. One would be in my private life and one would be professionally. In my private life, as I look back at my life, I would be kinder in my relationships, much kinder in my relationships. The only regrets that I carry with me at 68 years old is that I wasn't kind in certain relationships that uh, I was in. We're having a 50th high school reunion coming October. I got to tell you, Greg, when I saw that email and it, it invited me <laughs> to my 50th reunion, I almost passed out. I couldn't believe it had been 50 years. But as I as I look back and there's a Facebook page for our high school reunion and, you know, some of the folks I haven't talked to in 40, 50 years, I look back at some of those relationships and again, the only regrets I've had in life is that I just wasn't nicer or kinder in my relationships. Uh, professionally, I got to tell you, I have no regrets. And you've probably heard this a number of times from people who've talked to because for me, everything I've done, everything I've went through, good, bad, or indifferent, all of it has got me to the point where I'm at now. Even most of the things in my uh, personal life, with all the difficulties and all the ups and downs and overs and unders I've been through, everything got me to where I am now. There's a great little book. It, it's not so little. It's called The Life Unlived. And so it's about the choices we've made and the lives that we have to leave behind. A lot of times we fantasize about what we could have done and I could have been in a different relationship, could have had a different career, could have made more money, could have done this if I would have done that kind of thing. But the reality is that we are who we are because of what we've done in the past and what we're currently doing now. So that's my answer. I wouldn't do anything differently. And that's a great place to be, knowing that after all the heartache, headaches, overcoming obstacles, all the different things you have that, you know, that challenge you and your, and your career, that you're good where you are because you learn from them. So that's a great place to be. Right. And I continue to learn from them. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It's a process well, what, for sure. Yeah. Well, what advice would you give someone who wants to do what you do? Well, uh, there's, I think there's a number of ways of doing this. There's a, a book by a woman named Barbara Shear. It's called Wishcraft that she put up decades ago. And she is not, she never went to college. She never went to school. But she does, uh, at that point, she was tra traveling nationally. She was giving talks. She was um, um, doing presentations. And she did it without a degree. I could not have done what I'm doing without a degree. I needed to get an undergraduate degree. I needed to uh, get a master's degree. Now, I chose a master's in social work versus a Ph.D., um, simply because back then I didn't have the money and a PhD program was longer than an MSW program, but I'm glad I did. It's more of a practical degree, I think, than getting a PhD in clinical psychology. Um, now, clinical psychologists wouldn't agree with me, but um, <laughs> it's, it's, getting, it's getting the proper degree and then getting a lot, as much good good experience as possible. And I think that's what carries the day. And I think that's what separates some really good therapists from the mediocre or actually bad therapists. It's getting the experience after you get the degrees that you need. And part of the degrees for me has been reimbursable. I've needed to have this MSW, although there's four or five other reimbursable degrees in order to make a living. 
because it's nice to help people, but I also need to make a living at it as well. Right, right, exactly. That's great advice, talking about the different types of degrees. You know, really identify what is needed for your end goal more than anything else. That's right. Great. Well, the interesting part for me is I didn't know my end goal until a couple of years ago. <laughs> that it was really... <laughs> a lot of folks are like that. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, and I you just, they talk about, you know, a lot of research and a lot of uh, books will talk about finding your purpose. And for me, my purpose came through a process of living, trying to explore and find that purpose. And it only took me, what, 50 years to find out that I didn't want to be a writer, but that I wanted to do more <laughs> in helping people. But that that's really helped me get out in the community and do more talks and more presentations and those kinds of things. So I've been really grateful for that. Well, speaking of which, about not wanting to be a writer, are there any current projects you're working on that you would like to share? Well, I do a blog. I do a regular blog. I really enjoy doing those a lot. Um, and I write periodically for NAMI, which is National Alliance for Mentally Ill. I write okay. a blog for them. I've done one hardcover magazine article for them. I've done presentation I've done one pres national presentation for them. So my writing has more to do with blogging than anything else. I have been quoted in, you know, things like the Boston Globe and Chicago Tribune. I had an article a few years back in the Huffington Post and those kinds of things. But generally speaking, I write my own blog, which I really, really enjoy because they're short and they're to the point, and I really enjoy doing those. Um, and then I do mostly presentations. Does that answer your question? It does. Yeah, you still have writing in your life, but it's not necessarily your profession. It's more of an enjoyment, a hobby, an right. outlet. Absolutely, yeah. right. That That's a big difference, and it's and, a good thing you realize that. And it's a way of helping people as well. You get a lot of positive feedback on the blogs. Absolutely. That's great. Well, you just took us on your career journey. And as with most journeys, success largely depends on reliable transportation. And we don't know each other, but I'm a huge car enthusiast. And our pre-call, I learned what your first car was. So could you please tell our audience, what was your first car? My first car was a metallic green, three-speed, uh, 1971 Mustang, Ford Mustang. That's awesome. My first car was a 1968 three-speed, six-cylinder Ford Mustang. Seriously? <laughs> yeah. No kidding. Was it, it wasn't, souped, was it souped up at all? or? No, no. It was as basic as an exhaust leak. You know, it was as basic as it got. And it I, was red. It, it wasn't green. Red. I remember that Mustang, the 68 Mustang. It was really nice. That my, The year I bought my Mustang, the 71, they had changed styles. Big, big. That's a big Mustang. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It wasn't the same thing as, as the really cute ones that you got. Did yeah. you enjoy it? Oh, yeah. Absolutely loved it. It was great. And I recently sold my 60, 66 Mustang convertible about a year ago. Oh, no so, kidding. Did you re yeah, did you it. reverb it? Did you redo it? Yeah. Yeah, I redid it and everything else. Really enjoyed it. I'll send you a, a video oh, I on YouTube. I would love to see it. Love to see it. Well, what's your dream car if you have one? Um, My dream car might be that 71 Mustang, I got to tell you. <laughs> But with a V8, right? But with a V8, maybe 351 V8. That's exactly There you go. Right. Something <laughs> a little awesome. more super on it. Right, right. Well, one great perk to some jobs is having a company car. So if I had all the money in the world, I'd love to get you a cool company car based on your job. So I actually went with your, your recently published book, Independent Enough, and I took your first sentence that it's a book about relationships. And I know that, you know, your job is helping people relate better in their relationships. So I thought, well, what was the... Not the worst relationship in the automotive world, but what was one of the more strained relationships in the automotive world? And so I fell on uh, Ford and his son, Edsel. 
So they had a little bit of a strained relationship back in the early days of Ford. I don't know if you know this or not, but no. uh, Ford Sr. did not want to change the Model T. Had been in production for 18 years. He didn't see any reason to change it, even though Chevrolet and everyone else was coming out with cooler cars that weren't always black, and they had a lot of options. And so Edsel wanted to come out with the Model T, the Model A, the successor to the Model T, and he wanted to add colors and all this kind of stuff. And he actually ended up winning that battle, but it was a battle uh, to with his dad. And so they had bad relationships. And so anyways, I decided, you know what? I'm going to pick the coolest Edsel ever for you. Now, most Edsels, if you know those cars, they're not the prettiest cars in the world. But yep. Edsel actually made a one-off 1938 Model 40 Special Speedster as a prototype. So this is the first year they had the V8 Ford engine. Look at so that. I'll send you a picture, and it's a gorgeous two-seater Roadster with a boat tail rear end that's in a museum somewhere right now. So that's the car I'd pick for you if I had all the money in the world to get you a company car. Greg, I'll take it. All right. <laughs> you know, it's interesting that you said that because I think, you know, a lot of us as men do battles with our fathers. And what you just described was the son became and I had to say cliches, but he became independent enough to do what he needed to do, even though his father didn't want him to. And I think in order to become healthy and mature and, and adult-like and make good decisions, we got to do those kind of battles with our family of origins and grow past it and, and become much more independent. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, it's interesting because I think in relationships, in order to be in the kind of relationships we want, we have to look at ourselves and then create the kinds of relationships we want, regardless of what somebody else does. Like Edsel, like uh, Ford's son you just described, his father was not a, uh, a passive man, for sure, very aggressive, very business-oriented. And you can imagine he did a lot of confrontation. But regardless of what his father did or said, he was able to do what he needed to do to be successful on his own. That's a great story. Thanks for sharing that with me. Yeah, and it just worked out great that your first car was also a Ford. So a that's Ford. Cool. Terrific. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, well, thank you so much for taking us on your journey today. What's the best way our listeners can learn more about you and what you do? Well, if they wanted to, they could go to independentenough.com. It's my website. That's the best way. And also any other social media, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, Independent Enough. Awesome. Thanks. Well, thank you so much for taking us on your career journey today, Larry. Well, you're welcome, Greg. And thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Learn From Others, where we help others succeed by sharing success. Where will our next adventure take us? Subscribe to find out. If you know of someone who has a cool career story or occupation, contact Greg through Instagram at GregStanleyLFO. That's G-R-E-G-S-T-A-N-L-E-Y-L-F-O. And we will see you soon as we learn from others together.